Okay, so this is the uh, Christian Theology 2 class, and uh, we are uh, studying this uh, during the 16-week quarter, trimester, whatever you want to call it. Um, we're studying a biblical doctrine of man, sin, and salvation. So those are kind of the three main topics. Last quarter, we studied theology proper, or the study of God, and uh, that was a very appropriate starting place when you're studying theology, since theology is the study of God, and that's the best starting place is to start with God and what the Bible has to say about that. But uh, we kind of talked about this a little bit last week, and I'm just curious to what you guys, how you guys would respond, but uh, what, why do you guys think... Um, it's important to talk about the theology of man and the theology of sin before you talk about the doctrines of salvation. You c- Yeah, if you don't know you have a sin problem, then you don't need know your need for a savior. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Any any other thoughts? Uh, guys, married guys, you guys have all probably done you know, wedding ring shopping at some point, right? And uh, I don't know what your experience was like, but usually they, you know, you're trying to buy a nice sparkly diamond. Are you familiar with how the jeweler shows you the scintillations and sparkliness of the diamond? You guys are, are you guys mad at each other right now? You guys not sitting next to each other? <laughs> that you know of. It's against that black backdrop so that diamond can really be seen a lot more Yeah, so put it against something dark, a background, dark background so that you can see the brilliance of the diamond all the better. And so that's the same kind of a um, illustration for why we look at the doctrine of man and sin first is because it provides that black velvet backdrop, which makes the diamond of salvation shine all the more brilliantly. It'll also make uh, a lot of some of the more, I would say, challenging, challenging to our pride, challenging aspects of the doctrines of salvation, uh, a little more understandable. So when we're looking at uh, how weak man is, how sinful man is, when we get into talking about like total depravity and things like that, um, it'll make it a lot more understandable why God, uh, man is so incapable of saving himself. Like, you know, when Jesus says, uh, uh, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Or it says, you know, that uh, unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And just like your own, nat- you had no control over your own natural birth, uh, it's a sub- appropriate illustration in John chapter 3 that Jesus says, you have to be born spiritually again in order to be saved. Uh, and we, as we study the doctrines of man and sin, you will see all the, all the more, wow, I really did need God's intervening grace and salvation in my life. So it'll just really highlight that all the more. 
Last week we uh, studied uh, the, the creation of man in Genesis chapter 2, and one of the biggest takeaways from that, I think, is we wanted to clarify that man was uh, first and foremost created by God, but what man is in his essence is a body-soul. He's not just a body. God created man uh, from dust of the earth and formed a body, but then breathed the breath of life into his nostrils and made him in his image. And somebody in this class had a really great observation that I really appreciated that was shared. I won't say who, because I, I want to foster more good talking and observations. But really good observation. We were trying to make a distinction between um, the created, the rest of creation and animals and man. And what the biggest distinguishing factor is that man is created in God's image. Animals are not. And then I made a point to say, based on Roman, or Genesis 1, uh, that God breathed uh, the breath of life into the nostrils of man. Right? It doesn't say that he did that to animals, but the person wisely observed and pointed out that in Genesis 1.30, just listen to me if you want, he says, And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, Okay, so just having the breath of life, uh, according to that text, doesn't necessarily differentiate us between man and animals, but being made in the image of God is what uh, distinguishes us uh, most clearly from animals. So uh, what, though, as we talk about being made, I've said it a couple times now, being made in the image of God, if you all recall, how would you summarize, how would you describe what it means to be made in the image of God? Somebody asked you that, what would you say? You're talking to somebody, talking to a pro-abortionist, or you're talking to an unbeliever at work. You're talking to somebody who's struggling and discouraged, and it's just like, I'm just worthless. I don't, I just don't, I don't, I don't like myself. And you say, No, you are made in God's image. You are valuable. And they go, What, do you, what does that mean? What would you say? Man has the ability to reason where animals do not. Okay. Yeah. There's a there's an aspect of us that is uh, we have rationale and ability to reason, talk. Uh, that's different. Animals don't have that, right? So we have a a reason, a mind that can reason. Yeah. What else? Immortal spirit that will be for all of time. Immortal spirit. Okay, just like the God is spirit, He made us in His image. So we are also a, a spiritual aspect to us. Yeah, what else? Intelligence, yeah. Kind of goes along with the reason in mind, too. It's very similar. Intelligence that can 
We can grow in it as well. Feelings, yeah, we're dynamic is another way to say that. We emote. So kings, kings of the ancient Near East would set, set up um, statues to mark their territory, their domain. Uh -huh. So instead of uh, God setting up like inanimate objects to mark his territory, he's in essence created us as living statues, so representatives of him to mark his um, really domain over the entire uh, world. Okay, we're representatives of God in the world, and how do we how do we exhibit that? Represent? How do we represent him in the world, Josh? What were you saying? Uh, I think of like Romans 12, you know, 1 and 2, like, like they're presenting our bodies a living sacrifice. Mm -hmm. So through That's our good. life, um, worship of God, um, we're not a dead sacrifice, but as we live, we um, we function as his, his ambassadors. Yeah. Uh, Genesis 1, how else, how else do we um, exhibit that in verse 28 says, God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So what, you know, that comes right on the heels of he made man in his image, in his image he made man. And that following verse, he describes that. So what, how else are we image bearers? Yeah, yeah. Dominion, rulership, exercising authority over creation. Good. I'll just put dominion just for short, but that's the idea, this, that governing. Um, so, you know, after God created them, he, he put Adam and Eve into the garden to work and to keep. And to they bear fruit, be, uh, be fruitful and multiply, to, to um, multiply the human race. So that all of those things are uh, reflections of image bearing, uh, and that is how we glorify the Lord. Uh, the illustration I used was like that we are made like mirrors to reflect the glory of God, not only to, back to Him, but also uh, among the world. Very good. Any questions about the image of God, or the creation of man? Anything anyone thought of over the week gnawing at you? We did, just as a reminder, the, just, uh, the Bible, uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament, view man as a holistic unit, as opposed to uh, compartmentalized, you're a body and a soul. Like, uh, like that, that, that's a very Greek way of thinking. And the biggest difference is because, you know, you could look at some passages in the New Testament that says, like, you know, when we die, our soul is immediately with the Lord. All right. So the immaterial aspect of you is in heaven when you die. That's true. And so you might look at them and be like, see, there's two separate parts of us. But, uh, but that's temporary. 
In Greek thought, that's not temporary. Like it's just you're a floating soul in the afterlife forever. But there, the New Testament is very clear that our bodies will be physically resurrected and then glorified, and our bodies will be rejoined to our souls. And so that is the kind of difference between the scriptural. Um, so the, yes, there are passages that differentiate between our body and soul, but when it comes to thinking about like... Um, our counseling of our own hearts with the Word of God and counseling others, encouraging others, we have to remind ourselves that we are um, not to just be compartmentalized, but we are a, a body-soul. That is the way God created us, and there's not a clear, hard-line dis, uh, distinction between the two. I showed you a couple passages last week where our physical body can impact our spiritual well-being, and our spiritual well-being can impact our physical bodies. And so it's important to keep that in mind when we are um, evaluating the, the, you know, the dashboard of our lives and our hearts, right? When you see that check engine light going on in your soul and you're want, and trying to figure out or trying to help someone else, what is going on looking at your whole person, my physical well-being as well as my spiritual. So that brings us to page two of your handout. Page two of your handout, The Fall of Man, letter C. In Genesis chapter three, this is where we begin to see the fall of man. It does not describe the origin of sin, but it does detail how sin entered and impacted humanity. And so we, after we get done talking through the fall and its uh, ramifications, then we will jump into uh, a more in-depth, detailed discussion about sin itself. Uh, but this historical event sets the stage for the unfolding drama of how God will reclaim His everlasting dominion over the planet, which was hijacked by the fall. So in Genesis chapter 3, you have the stage set with a test. God sets up a test. Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 through 17. I'm now looking at the top of page 3. We have the passage there and bold and italicized that we can look at together. Genesis 2, 16 through 17, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. So how would you describe the test? Just based on that, those two verses there. What is the test? Testing their obedience. Testing their obedience, yeah. Testing whether or not they will do God's will. See, in the garden, God tested Adam and Eve, and the test was simple. They were to eat freely eat the fruit from any tree in the garden except one, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, determining whether or not they would believe God or trust Him and obey. Disobedience was highly consequential. It meant death, right? He says, surely, you will surely die. And, and that's, we can infer from that, based on other scriptures in the Bible, that God not only meant a physical death, but also a spiritual. God's purpose in the test was to give Adam and Eve a knowledge of sin through obedience by not eating the fruit of the tree of knowledge. They came to a knowledge of good and evil, but they attained the knowledge in the wrong manner. 
So you have the test set up, and it's interesting to think about and reflect on the people involved in the test, right? You have everything that's been created, and it's all, God declares it's all good. Right? It's good in His eyes, and so are Adam and Eve. And what I like to call, and I've heard other people call, um, when you think about them in this situation, is that they have an untested and unconfirmed holiness. So they have the ability to sin. Um, they don't quite yet have the, the uh, inclination to do it yet, but uh, they have an untested and unconfirmed holiness. And this is interesting because it's very similar to Jesus' incarnation. In passages we have in the Bible, in particular like Philippians chapter 2, I'll go there real quick here and read that for you. Uh, Jesus had an unconfirmed and untested holiness in his incarnational state, in his humanity, um, though he, had, of course, was at the same time God and was holy. So it's a very interesting thing. Let me get there to Philippians here. Philippians chapter 2, verse 8 says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus became obedient. Even if we went to the Gospels and you know looked at the story of where Jesus was in the temple and his parents didn't know that he had stayed behind. And at the end of that story, it says that he continued to grow in wisdom and obedience. So um, Jesus grew in holiness, not by sinning and learning to not do that, but by being presented with tests and opportunities and sufferings and trials and temptations that were genuine and real, but he never gave in to them. So Jesus learned obedience and passed all of the tests and obeyed perfectly where Adam failed. And that is you know, so important, as we'll talk about much more later when we get to the doctrines of salvation, because Jesus then imputes, He gives us that record of perfect righteousness that we never could achieve, and that Adam did not either. So that is the test, and the people involved in the test. Then there comes the temptation. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So that we hear that the agent of the temptation is the serpent, a true and genuine snake. The Hebrew term that is used there is used all over the Old Testament to refer to literal snakes. So here, and we learn through other scriptures like Romans chapter sixteen twenty and Revelations chapter twelve nine that this serpent is not just a talking animal, but a animal possessed by Satan. And this crafty creature issues a threefold strategy to dupe Eve into disobedience. 
So the first thing Satan does is he raises doubt concerning God's word. The temptation created suspicion about the goodness of God. It raised a question whether God was dealing wisely and fairly with Adam and Eve. Eve succumbed to the temptation in that she exaggerated God's prohibition by her response to Satan. God had said nothing about touching the fruit. Now, I've seen some people interpret it that way where she, you know, when she says, you shall not eat from it or touch it, that, that phrase there, touching it, was not, you know, in God's original prohibition. And that could be, you know, Eve exaggerating it. It could also just be Adam, you know, trying to protect his wife and being like, don't even go near it and touch it. And she could be saying it because of that. So the scriptures just doesn't clearly tell us why she added that little extra um, aspect there. But Satan also lied by saying they would not die. Satan made a categorical denial of God's earlier statement. He says, you surely will not die. And then Satan told a partial truth. Genesis 3, 5, Satan told them that they would be like God, knowing good and evil if they ate the fruit. It was true that they would know good and evil, but Satan did not tell them the rest. He did not tell them about the pain, suffering, and death that would occur because of their sin. So here we have the, the first temptation, and it's really interesting. It's very, uh, the way that this temptation unfolds, the way you see it unfold in um, Eve's heart is really the way temptation unfolds in the rest of our hearts. And 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, kind of says this, All that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. So all sin can really be boiled down to the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, and the pride of life. And you see that here in Eve's uh, response back in Genesis. Um, after he speaks, I think it's in verse 6. Let me turn there. Genesis 3, 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, so you have the desires of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, the, desire, the pride of life there, she took the fruit and ate. So we see also there the scriptures attest to that the desire uh, gives birth to sin there. And so, what happened? Well, actually, I got another question. Top of page four, before we talk about the results of sin. What, in just what we just read there and what you guys see described in that passage in Genesis 3, what ways does Satan impugn God's character in... Well, I guess... Let me back up. In what ways do, do we see similar temptations to what Satan did to Adam and Eve? What do we see similar ways he tempts us in modern thought and culture today? Mm-hmm. 
um, we're, we're told that we're the representatives and not God. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're told to do whatever feels good. Yeah. Um, we're told that we're the smartest people and create science and do everything that we want to do. I saw an article about they're making babies now. It's like there's that science thing where they're going to make babies in a cocoon or whatever. And mm-hmm. the woman doesn't have to go through childbirth. Um, you know, we're, we're told that we don't have to just go up and down the list you know you come up with examples of how we're challenged yeah um and question that we're actually in charge of all those things and not god you know absolutely absolutely we even distort just the image of god and and take all those things and like you said just elevate it to our own sinful purposes and use it for our own pleasures and take pride in all those things and abandon what god says how else what are, what are some other ways god kind of impugns or satan impugns god's character today in modern thought all right because that's that's what led in the temptation to the sin was a uh, getting eve to doubt God's character. If God is a God who does no wrong, Satan questions that when we decide, oh, I can be whatever gender I want to be. God didn't create me the way he intended. I get to make that choice. And in that, I'm questioning his goodness. Mm-hmm. Perfect will there. Yeah, so he gets us to question his goodness, and you see that like you brought up in the modern-day struggle where um, uh, boys and girls uh, struggle with uh, understanding who they are created to be and uh, wrestling with that and rejecting that and uh, uh, struggling with their agenda and things like that. So, yeah, that's another way. If, 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 I, don't, if I don't feel good about this, then God may, must not be good. What else? I mean, that there's big and little sins. Yeah, big and little sins. We might not feel like it's going to hurt us that bad. Yeah, the more respectable sins that are okay to do. God's not as mad about them. Not that big of a deal. Uh, you see that really taught uh, predominantly in the Catholic Church itself, right? There's a difference between venial sins and mortal sins. Mortal sins are big no-nos. You don't do those. But venial sins, it's not as big of a deal. And You know, just you can do a few Hail Marys for those and a few things to make up for that. What about, uh, you know, the age-old challenge you might hear from an unbeliever is like, well, if God is so good, why is there so much suffering in the world? Why does God let this happen? Why does this guy let this tragedy happen? These terrible things that we do see all over the world. But there's, a, there's an example of a satanic rhetoric, talking point, coming from the mouths of unbelievers. Uh, you can even lurk in our hearts and challenge us. It's like, oh man, this terrible thing happened. Why does God let these things happen? And cause it, you know, left unchecked by the word of God can lead us to impugn God's character. People will try to set up a uh, dichotomy, a false dichotomy. Right? If God's all good, then none of this bad stuff was ha- would happen. So if that must mean he's not good, or if he's all-powerful, he could stop these things. And since these things don't happen, then he's not all-powerful. You can't have a God who's both good and all-powerful, is what they'll say. Minimize the consequences of sin. 
Yeah, right, just like what Satan did there. So it's, and I think that's related to what Carol was saying. Like if there's uh, little sins and big sins, right? I mean, God won't be too upset with me if I live a generally good life. I could probably still make it to heaven or try to minimize those consequences, right? Surely you won't die. Surely God won't send me to hell. I've done a lot of street evangelism, and one of the common questions I'll ask is, is uh, you know, do you think you're a good person? And majority of the time, majority of the time, People will say, yeah, right? yeah, no, I'm a pretty good person. And you just say, well, what makes you think that? And they'll sit there and go through a laundry list. Well, I mean, I've never killed anybody, and you know, I don't hurt children, and you know, I try to I work a job, try to contribute to society. You know, I don't I don't go out and, I don't go out and do DUIs and hit people with you know while I'm drunk. You know, all this kind of stuff that they think of to uh, create their own metric for why they're a good person. And then I'll walk through God's word with them about some simple commands that says, well, have you ever lusted for a man or a woman in your heart? Have you ever told a lie? Have you ever done it? And most of the time, people, well, yeah, of course I've lied. Yeah, I stole something when I was a kid. Uh, yeah, I've used God's name in vain. Or, you know, yeah, I've not been loving. Yeah, I've been angry before. And they'll say, okay, well, according to your your own testimony. In God's eyes, you're a lying, thieving, blasphemous adulterer at heart. And so on the day of judgment, would God find you innocent or guilty? Well, when you put it that way, <laughs> right? So it's like, well, whose standard are we using? And so Satan would love us to use our own standard and impugn God's character. Well, man, God's way too harsh. That's a, well, How could you want to follow a God who would send people to hell for eternity for sinning against him? Well, let me tell you about the good news. Because God is not just a holy God, He is also a loving God. But, yeah, any other thoughts? Just, uh, he, I feel like he tries to paint God as somebody who, <clears throat> who is all-powerful, but is not completely good. I mean, you talked about that already, but it's like we have, in culture today, we have a huge distrust of any institution, whether it's the institution of marriage, the institution of of business or corporations, the institution of the police, the institution of the church, any authority figure is seen as, well, they got to where they are by doing something you know, nefarious or mm -hmm. wrong. But I feel like he tries to paint God the same way. It's like, okay, God knows the difference between good and evil. God has that wisdom. He's trying to keep it from you. Mm -hmm. So he is all big and powerful, and he doesn't want you to be that way. Yeah. He's withholding something good back from you that, you know, and that's that's what we kind of saw with Eve, where she saw that it was good to make her wise. It's like, why is that? Why is God not giving this to me? I want that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, just helping us distrust authority in general, but then ultimately distrusting the Lord, right? Uh, that can be seen simply as just uh, uh, the how you respond to the authority of God's Word, right? God doesn't speak audibly. He has spoken fully and completely as, uh, in His Word. And uh, some people would like to uh, sow seeds of distrust in this. Well, how can you trust that ancient document? I mean, that's so antiquated, right? Uh, uh, you know, marital roles, you know, a husband leading his family and a wife is submissive. Oh, that's so antiquated and that's so out of date. How can you trust a document like that? Or look at all the horrible things these people did in the Old Testament. I mean, like, you trust a God? Oh, look at this. God's doing genocide. He used Israel to slaughter all these kinds. I mean, come on. And just all these kind of things. You believe that God parted the Red Sea or the Jordan River? What? You, God believe, you believe God created everything in six literal days? Like, what do you guys... People try to sow seeds. That's not scientific. 
So there's different ways. Mm-hmm. Yep. Sowing just a tiny little kernel of doubt and distrust in God's authority. And kind of related to that is even thinking like categorically. Um, so I mean, getting Adam and Eve to, to think of God not in a completely different category, but in a sense like them, just maybe a better version of them. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we become very flippant, the man upstairs, and, uh, you know, there's a little more respect given, but just in general, people have lost the gravity and weight of who God is, and he's just a little bit better than we are. Yeah. Yeah, you see this, I think, in the way people treat Jesus and the authority Jesus has. So even in, um, you know, Protestant evangelical circles, you know, people who profess Christ uh, where it's like culturally, uh, you know, cultural Christianity, Bible Belt America, uh, people grow up around church, going to church, and they say, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but, you know, they don't really live a Christian life. Well, you say, well, who is Jesus? Well, he's a good man. He's a good teacher. I mean... He claimed to be God, but, you know, I don't really think much about that. Um, don't live, certainly, as if he's God. And uh, even the secular world understands and believes Jesus really existed, but they don't view him anything more than a man, uh, more, maybe like a socialist, a hippie, right? Taught a lot of good things, helped the poor people out, and, you know, uh, stuck it to the man. That's what Jesus was all about. He resisted the religious authorities, and he really told them what's up. And that's what I get from Jesus, right? But I don't see him as he really is, as 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 God and as holy. Yeah. Any other thoughts? All right. Let's look at the results of sin. This is page four. The results of sin. Adam and Eve's sin had catastrophic consequences as God had to punish the disobedience of the first family. We read of God's righteous dealings in Genesis 3, 14-19. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. And toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread, till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." So who's the first character, who's the first first uh, person to get judgment of God in this passage? The serpent. It is mentioned earlier, this is not just your average garden snake. This is one who has been possessed uh, by Satan, as we learn in, uh, later. Um, whether or not Adam and Eve knew that at the time, that, oh, this, that, that was Satan, um, is not made clear in the text at all. Uh, but the certain had serpent, the snake, has earlier been a noble creature, 
And uh, it's interesting to think about what the snake used to be before this judgment. I did not snakes didn't used to slither on their bellies. Uh, they had apparently some, you know, like legs. I don't know, maybe like a dragon or something like that. Uh, but it was a noble and good creature. And, but as a result of the judgment, it was altered in form and shape. Because the serpent exalted itself, it would now be forced to crawl on its belly and eat the dust of the earth. So it's interesting, you know, why is God taking, I was thinking about this, like, why is God taking it out on the snake? I mean, he was possessed by Satan. Why does the snake have to get the bad rap? Um, why not just Satan? And I, I think, you know, Scripture obviously doesn't say. Uh, my own personal just thoughts on the matter would just be that uh, the judgment on the serpent is just a, an example of the stain of sin uh, and the consequences of that sin. When sin is performed, it never just affects you. Right? That's sometimes people try to justify their sin by thinking, well, this is just, you know, my struggle. It's private. But sin always impacts everybody else around you. It sends a ripple effect. It impacts everybody that is near to you. And so I think the serpent, the judgment against the serpent is an object lesson and a consequence of that. But uh, it wasn't just a serpent. Uh, Satan, did, Satan also was judged. Uh, this verse is to be understood as being addressed to not only a snake, but to Satan, which remember that term is, means adversary. There would be enmity between Satan's seed, unbelievers, and even possibly demons, and the woman's seed, believers, but specifically Christ. Uh, he says, he shall bruise you on the head. It's interesting, when you see the word seed, it's, a, it's what we call a collective singular, you know, in grammar language, right? It's, it's one word, it's not plural, but it is referring to multiple things with in, in a singular form, right? When you when I say the word seed, you think not just probably one single seed, but you can use it to refer to lots of seed. You don't go to the store and buy, uh, you can't buy seeds, but plural. But think about family too. That's a singular, plural, uh, singular, collective singular noun or the word flock. And I'll say flocks to, uh, if I say flocks, you probably think of multiple herds or groups of animals. But just by saying flock, you think of multiple animals. Um, so we see here that the word seed can be used both to refer to a single thing and plural things. And that is what is uh, meant in this text. We see that in other passages. Let me look just real quick at Galatians chapter 3, where you see this collective singular used as well. Galatians chapter 3, is it verse 16? 3.16 says this, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, which offspring there is a similar word to the seed word in the Old Testament. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. So there, Paul is looking at the Old Testament and to the promises given to Abraham. And God was promising Abraham blessings that he would multiply his family, um, that he would uh, be a father of nations, and that he, he, his family would just grow so large. But it is also referring to one offspring in particular, and that is the Christ. And so we see that here in this Genesis text. It, as Scripture it further progresses after Adam and Eve, it's more revealed to Adam and Eve that 
from the woman will come one particular person who will bruise the head of Satan and finally deal a death blow to Satan on the cross in particular. Uh, Romans chapter 16, 20 is another passage. Turn there real quick. That also speaks as Romans 16, 20 says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. An allusion there to the Genesis promise. And this is what we call, uh, here's the fancy, uh, it's called the first gospel. If you ever think that the gospel is not really ever talked about until Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this is the beginning. This is the seed of the gospel. The proto-euangelion is what the fancy $10 term is, we would call it. This is the very beginning of the gospel. So when you think about how Adam and Eve lived by faith, they were trusting in this promise from God. That as he laid out these judgments for them, there was going to come a day where their offspring, one particular one, would bring back the curse, would, bring, would save them from the consequences of their sin. But until then, there was going to be enmity between uh, the woman's seed and the serpent's seed. The, uh, the serpent would bruise him on the heel, which is a reference to the minor victory Satan seemingly had when Jesus died. But nonetheless, Jesus ultimately stomped on Satan's head and will finally do so, as we see in the book of Revelation, where Satan's ultimate defeat is handed to him there on the day of judgment. So the next thing, though, uh, is the judgment on the woman. Judgment on the woman in Genesis 3.16. The woman would experience pain in childbirth. The pain in childbirth is similarly used of Adam's toil in Genesis 3.17. Both would suffer in their respective roles. The desire of the woman would be toward her husband. Now, this may, maybe you've heard different interpretations of what that means, where it says that her desires for her husband, he would rule over her. Rule over her. It's a difficult phrase, and it can mean a couple different things. It could mean sexual desire. Uh, it could mean a desire for security under her husband's authority, or even a desire to rule over her husband. So you think like uh, that God might be saying that your desire is to be in control, but that the husband has the role of leadership. And so I think uh, an important thing to interpret this is to remember that the role of husband uh, leading the family and the wife submitting, being a helpmate, that was a pre-fall thing. That was a good thing in God's eyes. So the, the husband exercising a, a ultimate authority and leadership in the family is not a result of sin. Um, so then what does it mean for Eve to uh, desire her husband? Well, some people would look at Genesis 4-7, where um, Cain is struggling with temptation and anger in his heart. And, he's, and, he, and God warns Cain and says, sin is crouching at the door and seeking to rule you. It's the same word there used, but I think it's a different context there. And it'd be uh, not appropriate to necessarily apply it here, where you would say like, oh, so Eve wants to rule rule over her husband like sin wants to rule over us. But I would say that this, uh, Adam had a pre-fall authority over Eve, and so the man's headship wasn't a change, but their relationship changed. And so this is what I would interpret it as, that Eve's desire is for the conditions of their relationship to be intimate and good, but because of sin, the man and hu- the husband and wife's relationship continually uh, is at risk to deteriorate, 
And that causes a longing and a sense of relational intimacy in the woman. So that is that would be my interpretation. It's very similar to uh, interpretation B there, desire for security under her husband's authority. Um, but that, that's kind of how I, I would see that. And then finally, the judgment on, uh, well, it's not finally, but the next one is the judgment on the man. Genesis three seventeen through 19, the first part of his judgment was against the ground. No longer would the earth spontaneously produce its fruit, but only, page 5, through hard toil by the man. The second aspect of man's judgment was death. Adam had been made from the elements of ground, and the death process would return man to the dust from which his body had been taken. Then there's a judgment on the human race. The result of Adam's sin would be passed on to the entire human race. All humanity now became subject to death. And we'll talk about that more as we unpack um, original sin and total depravity in the ne- uh, two weeks from now. And then finally, judgment on creation. All animal and plant life would be affected by the sin of Adam. Animal life and nature would resist the man. Animals would become wild and ferocious. That did happen. It happens actually several hundred years later um, after the flood. So you look at Genesis 9, and that's when the relationship between man and animal changed. And God said, um, they will fear you, and you will eat them. They are for you to eat, just like plants. But before the flood, um, I mean, it doesn't say uh, dogmatically, but before the flood in general, man was vegetarian. Vegetarian. doesn't mean eating meat's wrong, right? Just remember God told uh, Peter to wake up in a vision and say, get up and eat this food, have a barbecue. So uh, it, it is good to eat barbecue. Uh, Judgment on creation. So yeah, so all creation then would groan with the effect of the fall and anxiously long for the day of restoration. And that's talked about in Romans chapter 8. So question for you guys, what do the above actions that God has taken in judgment indicate how God viewed Adam and Eve's seemingly simple act of rebellion? It wasn't simple to God. Far far reaching consequences. Yeah. Didn't just impact Adam and Eve. Might be thinking in your heart and mind, we'll talk about this in uh, two weeks from now, but like it doesn't seem fair, right? Why why does all of creation why do the rest of us have to suffer um, on account of Adam and Eve's sin. And we'll talk about that some more. Romans 5 has a, a good deal to talk about that as well. What else does it tell us about God? This judgment. He is serious about sin. He is holy. He cannot tolerate or excuse any type of infraction. To do so would render him not holy, not just, not righteous. To rebel against God in any form, to resist him, the creation resisting the creator, is no small act. Does the punishment fit the crime? 
That might be people think that that doesn't seem seems heavy handed, right? It's not. And as we see uh, in the the end there of Genesis chapter three, um, God is so gracious to them in actually delaying the consequences of sin and uh, killing an animal. It's implied and covering their naked bodies with the skin of an animal. Well, there's only one way to get the skin off an animal. And so you kind of see the first sacrifice made to delay uh, judgment until the perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ, would come and put it all away once and for all. But yes, God is, God is very serious about sin, and so we see that uh, revealed in the judgment, and you see God... Uh, very clearly establish who has the authority. They didn't get to say anything against God. Well, you can't do that, God. Well, that's not fair, God. Who gave you the ability? God just laid out and leveled the judgments, and they had to live and deal with those consequences, as we do now as well. We still experience these things and see these things. In our just few minutes left, uh, I don't want to jump into the next section uh, and leave us hanging in there in the study of sin, but uh, any questions or thoughts that uh, popped in your guys' heads that you want to ask or share uh, as we've kind of looked at the fall of man? We sometimes have a way of trying to excuse sin by blaming someone else. You did this, therefore I see. Mm -hmm. And Adam tried that, but it didn't work. Yes. Yes, the very first blame shift. It wasn't me, it was the woman you gave me, is what he said. <laughs> he blamed God. Yeah. It wasn't even just blaming Eve. It was the woman you gave me. Ooh. That didn't go over too well. I'm sure Eve was really happy about that. I'm sure they had a conversation when he got home that day. <laughs> <laughs> Threw me under the bus. <laughs> yeah, we all, all of us in some form, we all want to, uh, well, we all tend to have a temptation to minimize our sin. And one of the ways that can um, manifest itself is in blame shifting. Um, uh, you can often see that in marital conflict, right? It's a, this, I wouldn't be angry if you just fill in the blank or with kids right well she hit me and so I hit her back right it's a subtle blame shifting instead of taking full ownership did the if you get hit first does it increase temptation to hit back sure but we're ultimately responsible for what's in our own heart and the actions that spring forth from that so it's easy to subtly blame shift. That's why I like Matthew 7, right? It causes us to look at the log in your own eye before you begin to even deal with the speck in someone else's eye. Uh, that's such a key in, in conflict uh, resolution in any form is owning up to and taking complete and full ownership for your own sin. I mean, that's the key to salvation too. I mean, somebody is not going to be saved until they're humbled by the fact of owning their own sin against God and confessing that to Him and seeking salvation and forgiveness from, from the Lord. So, anything else?
Got one minute. Okay, well, I, I would just again encourage you as you think through these things to be a Berean as you look at the text together. If you have questions, don't be afraid to ask it now or later if in the week. Um, uh, and if you have, you know, as we move on, like next week, if you're thinking about something from a previous lesson, you know, feel free to bring it up. Again, we have, we've increased our trimester length now so it's 16 weeks instead of 12 so we really want to um, utilize that extra uh, room wiggle room to have discussions and uh, I don't want to feel like we're having to just cramp run through this stuff and cram it into your heads but to be able to flesh it out talk about it and talk about the implications and applications of it uh, as well so there's no uh, no silly questions so I mean like uh, you have anything that pops in your head and you want to understand a text better uh, feel free to ask in front of everybody, but if you're too too nervous about that, you can certainly ask in private. Um, we'd love to talk more about it. So, all right, thanks everybody. You guys can be dismissed and move on with your day if you've already been here for first service or uh, get ready for worship in the second service. <laughs>